If you haven't already, please open in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are looking at verses uh, 1 through 4. We started kind of last week. It was a long introduction. So really, we're almost coming back to it fresh again. I won't do the introduction that I did last time, which was basically catching you up on all that we've covered and kind of bringing you up to speed and continuing the train of thought in the letter. And so you can always go back and pick that back up if you missed it, if you weren't here. So, to the good uh, but troubled church at Philippi, to the good but troubled church, and if you don't know what I'm even talking about, then you need to go back and listen to some of the sermons. But to the good but troubled church at Philippi, Paul says to them in this section, he says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. It's the only imperative in this long Greek sentence. It's the command. And everything else hovers around, circles around that command that he says. And uh, we learn in this section that in order to complete Paul's joy, or, or the way that they are to complete Paul's joy is, the way I would say it, is through gospel unity. Through gospel unity in the church. What is that? Well, I thought long about that, and I, I wrote out how I might define gospel unity, and I think I'll just keep, as I said before, coming back to these things. Because it's my position that as I speak with people over the years, and, and specifically Christians, there's confusion about what the church is and what the church is to do and the why of the church. They have different ideas that are not necessarily biblical ideas about the purpose of the church. And so the gospel unity uh, plays into all of that in making sure we understand what we're doing, why we're gathered, why we gather, why we come together. Gospel unity, these are my words now, gospel unity is, in a nutshell, a local assembly of people who are saved and united in Christ, genuinely loving each other, and laboring together for Christ, according to the word of Christ, all by the power of the life-giving and life-transforming spirit who was sent by Christ to indwell and enable his redeemed people to faithfully carry out his Good plans and purposes. Gospel unity. So practically, what that looks like for those who are truly part of the body of Christ is that they are to be, listen carefully, partnered, really partnered, all in with a local church. Sincerely helping and supporting each other. Quickly forgiving each other. Earnestly praying for and humbly serving each other. Biblically educating, correcting, 
and strengthening each other in order that they together might better and better and more and more do what they have been saved, redeemed, made new, and empowered, and brought together by Almighty God to do. And that is, advance the name of the divine and beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is, to make much of Him who has so graciously saved them. And they do that by continually toiling side by side to make the true gospel known to all both in the gospel things that they say and by the increasingly sanctified lives that they live with the hope that others, outsiders, the lost, the unsaved, the hurting and hopeless might see what they see. That the Lord is altogether good and entirely worthy and deserving of all our devotion. That they might see and understand the Lord's power over sin and how He alone can rescue sinners from it and its terrible harms. That they might know of the Lord's perfect wisdom and justice and righteousness and love. And knowing and seeing all of that turn from their foolish and self-destructive rebellion and cry out to and bow before Him, worship Him, and be saved. And then partner with the church in the great privilege and responsibility they have to live for and lift up Christ in this broken world. But the enemy, who might that be as I say that? Huh? Satan. The enemy, the devil, Satan, constantly works against this gospel unity. 
That's what he does. And so we must not be ignorant of his schemes. We need to be diligent. We need to be aware. We need to be striving for what the Bible tells us to be striving for and protecting what the Bible tells us to protect. You see the same charge toward unity and similar language in another of Paul's letters in Ephesians chapter 4, another prison epistle, again, writing while in prison in Rome. He writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, <laughs> urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Very similar to, to live a life worthy of the gospel. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How are they to do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Who's the one another there? The church, your brothers and sisters in that local congregation of redeemed, saved people that you are to be united with and advancing the name of Christ with. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3, eager. Eager. To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another translation of verse 3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Another translation, translation says, make every effort to keep that unity. Now, beloved, that should tell you something, right? That should tell you something, that the unity doesn't keep itself, that there's a real attack on this unity that the body of Christ should have and can have through the Spirit. They can have gospel unity, but as I just said, it's always under attack, and so is the case with this church in Philippi. This is a good gospel-preaching church, and yet Satan has worked his way in, in one way or another, to plant seeds of disunity. Which will undermine, if left unchecked, their gospel witness. Their gospel direction. Their ability to advance Christ. Which is why they're to be united in the first place. And the very purpose there to be united for. And so as one writer pointed out at Philippi, based on the letter, he says this, based on this letter, 
He says this, it seems that the divisions or dissensions had not yet reached an acute state there in Philippi, yet the frequency and urgency of the apostles' appeals for unity imply that the danger of disruption was real. So, with that, we'll step into the text and then begin to work through it. Verse 1, we'll read through verse 4. Again, we won't cover everything today. We'll come back to it. So, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Quickly, a few things I said last time, might as well repeat them in some way. So, the word so or therefore, depending on your translation, the beginning of verse 1, ties what we just read, those four verses, with what Paul already said in the preceding paragraph, or that is chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. From that paragraph, which we've already covered in detail, we learn that the church, the church, the local church, should live worthy of the gospel of Christ that they believe. And the worthy life includes the church standing firmly together, together as one unified team, striving side by side. Supporting one another, holding each other up in true partnership together for the faith of the gospel and remaining resolute in the face of any opposition. Now in chapter 2, that's where we are, Paul now makes a direct appeal to the church in Philippi, for unity. So this is what it is to live the worthy life. Now I appeal to you. Live it. Live unified. Live united in Christ, for Christ. He appeals directly to them. Not only for unity, but also, as you saw, humility. Because... Humility is a necessary requirement for gospel unity. For any unity, for that matter. But for sure, for gospel unity. And so he addresses these things, and we're going to look at closer. So if, and then the next word is if. If there is any encouragement in Christ. It's not, the if doesn't mean he's wondering. He's not questioning that. As I said last time, it's a marker of condition. It can be actual or hypothetical. In this case, it's actual. The condition is assumed here to be true. So you could translate if as since there is. Since there is. Since these things are true of you, church, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And he goes on and makes uh, several more expressions follow that. 
to communicate unity, gospel unity. Now, the four expressions or statements that are found in verse 1, as I understand it, as I understand it, they all convey what is true of any gospel-believing community or congregation, which would include this one. It is not just the church in Philippi that these things are true of. It's any gospel-believing, born-again, redeemed, Holy Spirit-indwelt assembly of believers. And being true, as they all are, they serve, here in Paul's uh, words, as the basis then and motivation for gospel unity that Paul goes on to describe and urges the church toward, okay? So because these things are true, then you, there's every reason for you, every motivation for you to do what I am calling you, commanding you to do, and that is complete my joy by being of the same mind. To be unified, to be united in Christ and for Christ, to put your petty arguing away and your personal agendas, and to get on board and get moving for the glory of Him. Okay, now I'm adding a lot of my own words, but that's the thought, that's the idea as far as I understand it. Now, here's what I want to say. There are a number, I want to note this, there are a number of ways scholars, Bible scholars, people way smarter than me, more studied than me, interpret these four expressions or statements. So this has been kind of a difficult couple of weeks for me as I've looked through them and tried to figure out what, what is it really saying? Uh, there are some questions about how do these expressions here that we just read, the foundation which is, as I said, the foundation and motivation for gospel unity in the church, how do they relate to one another? So, for instance, just as an example, if you look back, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, and then he says, any comfort from love. Comfort from love? Who's love for who? Because he doesn't state it. So is he talking about Christ's love for them? Is he talking about love for one another in the body? Is he talking about his love for them or their love for him? He doesn't state it. It's questions like that that come up when you're trying to figure out what exactly is being said. So here's what I'll do. I'm not going to, as I've said before, sometimes it, it, it's not helpful to take you through all the possibilities. We'll just be lost together. <laughs> uh, instead, I've worked through those, and I'm going to do my best to explain to you the way I understand and the conclusions I've come to. But there are some different views, okay? But listen, the main ideas that I just got through communicating to you about gospel unity, that's clear to me. That's clear. But specifically how we understand these statements and expressions, there could be some difference of decent and good difference of opinion concerning those things. You with me? All right. So some commentators, and I found this helpful point out that the first three of the four expressions in verse 1 made by Paul are similar in a way, are similar in a way to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we have there what you would call a Trinitarian benediction, a Trinitarian benediction or blessing, 
a blessing flowing out of the Trinity. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? There's similarity here. So I'll show you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. There Paul says to the church at Corinth, as he closes out the letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that last phrase is almost identical, almost identical to, to the phrase in 2.1 that we find in Philippians. Be with you all. Be with you all. And as one scholar says, this passage here in 2 Corinthians 13.14, Paul is, as he closes it out, he's reminding the Corinthians of the blessings they had received. Okay? But it has a Trinitarian um, form. So he begins with the Son. You, you have received grace from Jesus Christ. You have received love from God the Father and fellowship with God and each other through the Holy Spirit. You with me? So that's 2 Corinthians. And as I said, Greeks, Greek scholars, New Testament scholars, they, they, some, see similarities, linguistic similarities between Philippians 2.1 and 2 Corinthians 13.14. This matters here in a second. It matters. I'll explain why. So one writer says, these three clauses found in 2, sorry, uh, Philippians 2.1 very likely also reflect an intentional Trinitarian substructure. All right, that's going to help me. That's going to help me understand when Paul says, and comfort, any comfort from love, and I asked, who's love for who? If, this is a, if there's a Trinitarian substructure, in other words, he's speaking with that in mind, beginning with Christ, the blessing that's found in Christ, then the love of God, and then the Holy Spirit, and with a phrase that is almost exactly like the phrase in 2 Corinthians, then I know whose love he's talking about, the Father's love, okay? All right. See all this work we got to go through sometimes? I mean, not every passage is like this, but this was one of those where it's a little more uh, doesn't give itself as easily to interpretation. So one scholar says this, concerning, thinking that it is a Trinitarian substructure that is at play here in Philippians 2. He says this, May it not be, therefore, that Paul is reminding the Philippians here, in chapter 2, verse 1, of the great Trinitarian activity of salvation, whereby they are in Christ experienced the reality of God's love and have been woven into a fellowship of which the Holy Spirit is both author and indweller. Yes, I, I, I think so. I, I, I agree with that. I think it's, a, it's reasonable. It's a reasonable interpretation of the passage. And it will be then the foundation for the very unity, gospel unity, that Paul urges upon the church, all right? So... Let's look at the phrases now, with that in mind. The first one, and again, thinking of a Trinitarian substructure. So he begins with Christ, just like he does in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and speaks of the blessing that they have because they are in Christ. He says to them, any encouragement in Christ? And as I told you, since there is encouragement in Christ, now I got to tell you, this, this phrase, the other two I think are more clear to me, this one's a little bit harder to nail down. Because A, we have to understand it, and B, in our understanding of it, i got to figure out, and how does that motivate the church toward unity, towards gospel unity? Or how does it, uh, how does it serve as the grounds for 
gospel unity. I got to connect all those pieces. This one's a little difficult for me to nail down, but good old John MacArthur. And sometimes, yeah, he, I, through all the material I looked through, I thought he had the best, in my opinion, the best explanation. So here's what he says concerning any encouragement in Christ. What is Paul talking about? And believe me, there's like at least seven or eight different ways this has been explained among Greek scholars. John MacArthur says this, that word encouragement, encouragement, at least in the ESV, that's how it's translated, encouragement. He says this, the Greek word has the root meaning of coming alongside someone to give assistance by offering comfort, counsel, or exhortation. He then goes on to say, using a closely related word to that Greek word, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another helper or a comforter or an encourager, in a sense, whom he, Jesus, would ask the Father to send to all who would believe in him. Who would that be? The church. To be with them forever. That's John 14, 16. Then he says this. The most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes directly from the indwelling Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In light of that encouragement, the Philippians should conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ by endeavoring to be of one mind and spirit with each other. This profound spiritual principle demands pursuing unity as a grateful response to the believer's union with Christ. And then he concludes his thought by saying, Paul is asking, in effect, shouldn't the divine influence of Christ in your life compel you to preserve the unity that is so precious to him. That is one way to explain it. Christ has given the greatest encouragement, the most powerful encouragement through the spirit that he has given to his church that they might be united as one. Because of this divine influence that is true of you, Christian, should you not should it not then be important for you to be united in him since that is what he desires for you and why he gave you his spirit? It's one way to, to get at it. The next two are a little more easy for me to understand. Any comfort from love? So it's, again, he's saying, is there? Yes, there is, right? So they're supposed to ask the question, well, yes, there is, Paul. And yes, there is. And because of that, you need to complete my joy. Encouragement in Christ, comfort in love. All right, again, who's love for whom? Well, if we're correct, and this is a Trinitarian substructure, then Paul is referring to the love of God. He's referring to the experience of God's love, as one writer puts it, lavished on the Philippians, and for that matter, Paul in Christ. It's that love that the church knows people of God know, in Christ, the love of God, that saving 
love of God. So, one author says, in light of that, if that's what he's talking about, do you not know the comfort of the love of God? He says this, in the love, and specifically the Father, Trinitarian, in the love of the Father, they, the church, and we, the church, have found deep consolation or comfort the voice that speaks to our sorrows, the hand that touches our hurts. And as Paul would have us and them see, these blessings that we have in Christ and in God the Father now encourage us to be to each other what God in Christ has been to each of us. He, the unity that he calls for, this gospel unity, is a unity bathed in the love of God. It's not possible without this type of love. Have you not yourselves experienced this love of the Father? Have you not? Yes, you have. And since you have, and since it's flowing to you in abundance, you should be loving, letting that flow out of you, one another. But again, it's... It's not just like having nice feelings about the other, but it's, it's active love. It's, it's, it's esteeming the other above you and, and, and seeking their very best as you together are united hand in hand, arm in arm in advancing the name of Christ. You've got you to keep all the pieces together. So it's not just me liking you, you know? It's not just like, hey, we're friendly. That's not it. Is that what, lo is that what God's love has been to you? It's active. It, it goes after you. It seeks your very best, which is your conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So again, he's as he as he as he brings each one, then he's each one adds to a reason, another reason for why you you have no reason not to be united as I'm calling you to be in Christ and to come together as one and and, and be going the same direction for him. You have no reason. You have all the bless you have all the blessings that you need in order to achieve the very thing that God wants of you. This one, the last one, it just really it's like the nail. Boom. He says, any participation in the spirit? Another way to write that is any fellowship in, any sharing in the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. One writer says, believers have this sharing. This is, this is true. So he's not wondering, do you guys have any participation in the Spirit? I don't know. I mean, he's not asking, are you really born again? He knows they are. Again, since you do have this sharing in the one Spirit, complete my joy by being united. Having the same mind. And then he goes on, those expressions, which we won't get to, but it's all right. But we will, not today, not this morning. So one writer says, believers have this sharing in the Spirit, first with God, it is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
But by that very fact, secondly, they have it with one another. Because you know what? They live and breathe by the same Spirit. The church. Those who are truly born again. He goes on to say, by the Spirit, therefore, they, we, are united to Christ and in Christ to one another. And then this I wanted to show you. Another writer says this. Their common sharing in the Spirit, again, he's reminding them of what's true of them so that he can then command them toward what he does. Their common sharing in the Spirit should be a decisive factor in their life together as one, not multiple, one body in Christ. Participation in the Spirit should sound the death nail, that's a ring, like a ring, okay, a death nail, to all factiousness and party spirit, for it is by the one Spirit that they were all baptized into, immersed into one body, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says this, for in one Spirit we were all baptized to this and to a church that had factions and were divided, right? He's, that was a, a church suffering greatly concerning gospel unity. They all had their own personal agendas. They weren't going in the same direction. They weren't united together, arguing and bickering. He says to that church, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink that one spirit. Another author says concerning this expression, any participation in the Spirit, he says this, these things, all of them, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love from love, these things, and then any participation in the Spirit, they exercise a pressure upon those to whom they apply, urging them into united living with each other. And then he says, in order to illustrate this, take as an example one of the four items. When Paul says, if there is any participation in the Spirit, Paul's saying this, the work of the Holy Spirit is to create a fellowship both between the believer and God and between believers. This is another, this is where people are confused because you hear people talk about Christianity as if it's just them and God, them and God. What are you talking about? That's not right. That's not the end of the story for sure. It begins between you and God, but then he brings you together with one another, all of his redeemed saved, regenerated, and indwelt by the Spirit, people, and gathers you together providentially and sovereignly into local fellowships or assemblies for a purpose. To advance the one who saved you. <laughs> My goodness. So he says, Paul's saying this, the work of the Holy Spirit is to create a fellowship both between the believer and God and between believers. Okay, man, I just do my, it's my thing between me and God. I don't have to go to church. You're confused. You're confused about the whole thing. You're confused. Even just saying that, I don't have to go to church. You're confused. You're confused about salvation. At minimum, you're confused about salvation. And you're confused about the nature of the church. Both between the believer and God and between believers. If such a fellowship has been created in Philippi, and he's in effect saying, and I know it has, I know you've been born again. I know the Holy Spirit dwells in you then can you resist my appeal to live at one? 
The fact of a divinely created fellowship carries with it the implication of a church at one with itself. Any other style of living or practice lies against the reality of who you are in Christ through the Spirit. You see? And then finally, and we'll end with this one, any affection and sympathy. Okay, so, if this is a Trinitarian substructure, if that underlies Paul's words here, then we've been able to identify, first he talks about the blessings they have in Christ, and those blessings should encourage them and motivate them to seek and preserve and to keep and the unity that they have in Christ. The love, the next one, comfort of love from love, the love of God, that also that blessing that they have as saved people of God, God's love being poured out on them, that very love is the love that they will need to, to exercise among themselves to bring them closer together, to encourage, to strengthen one another, to keep them on the course that God has for them as one. And then you have any participation in the Spirit. We just talked about that. What is he talking about here? Any affection and sympathy? Again, there's varying conclusions. But just to show you, another translation of it is any tenderness and compassion. Is there any tenderness and compassion among you? Since there is, remember, he's not, at, he's not saying, I wonder. Since there is... I'm calling your attention to a church. Complete my joy, okay? But uh, just to show you how even translations are, there is difference of opinion. Whose affection and sympathy for who? Because he doesn't state it, okay? I'm gonna, I think it's flowing out of what he just finished with, which was the spirit, which really what, which is what this is about, because there's unity in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's an attribute of the work of the Spirit in the believer's lives. It is a unifying attribute. But just to show you something, here's the New International Reader's version of that verse, of this phrase. Has Christ been gentle and loving toward you? So that's not there. That's in what I've talked to you guys about before is that translations are different. And some translations move further away from just telling you what's there to giving you more of their interpretation of what Paul or whoever the author is, is actually saying. The word Christ is not there. We don't know what exactly he's talking about, affection and sympathy. We're trying to draw that conclusion from the context and from what everything that's being said. Has Christ been gentle and loving toward you? So it, it could be that. It could be that, although the word Christ is not there. It just says, any affection and sympathy? Okay? And that could maybe be an argument if Christ has been affectionate or gentle and loving toward you. Should you not be gentle and loving toward one another? You have no reason not to be toward his people, toward all those who are in Christ? Certainly, that could be it. But another way, another way it's translated which I think is closer to what Paul is probably saying, is in the NLT, again, they take a lot of liberties, but are your hearts tender and compassionate? And again, in the context, toward one another. I think. <laughs> so, seeing it as 
a manifestation of the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ and uh, a means toward unity, one writer says, one of the Spirit's ministries is to produce within each believer a concern and love for other members of God's family. Let me just pause right there. Look, if you can go on and on in your Christian life and have no concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to tell you something. You have no reason to think you're saved. Because that's what John says in 1 John. I mean, no concern. You don't have, you're not, because that is a work that the Spirit of God does. It doesn't mean it's always perfect. It doesn't mean you won't be selfish. You will be. I am at times. But if there is no concern, and, and I think that's what actually is going on in, in some cases where you just have people who aren't really saved. They show up, they're here, but that's the end of it. They're here for other reasons. They aren't being driven by the Spirit of God to be here and then to be with God's people and care for them genuinely. Biblically. It could also be that they are saved, but they are ignorant of what salvation means and the work of the Spirit. But if there is, if there is no, no care at all, you care not. You could take them or leave them. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. The Spirit of God. Look, you have no reason to believe the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have no reason. I would say that. I'm not going to draw such conclusions. The Spirit of God does not dwell in you. I, I can't see into your heart. But you have no confidence. You should have no confidence. Oh, I know I'm saved. How? You have no care for the people of God, and that's exactly what John says. If you have no love for your brethren, then the love of God does not dwell in you. You see what I'm saying? So I'm not going after any of you in particular. I'm just stating these things so you can think through it, Okay. So he says, one of the Spirit's ministries is to produce within each believer a concern and love for other members of God's family. This may be received or rejected by a believer. It is back and forth, because if the Spirit of God's there in them at work, he'll bring conviction, he'll bring motivation, he'll energize them toward, eventually, he'll bring discipline, whatever it is, toward this cause of a love, uh, a love for, a concern for the other members of the body of Christ. And again, not just... Not just a general love or concern, but a love or concern for them that they too would better advance the name of Christ by knowing the gospel better and by being transformed more and more to look more like him so that they are a more accurate witness of the gospel. He says, this may be received or rejected by a leader, but the Spirit's work is a reality and is a basis for spiritual unity. It's that very thing. He is bringing the glue. I mean, you know, we, we might try to do things to glue people together, but we can't glue people together. You're all crazy different. With all kinds of, you know what I mean? You're crazy different. We are, are we not crazy different? I mean, on many levels, we're crazy different. It is the uniting power of the Spirit that works to actually unify a church, to bring people from all different backgrounds, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, women, men, poor, rich, and bring them together, setting aside all those other, just not being focused on those and uniting around this one cause. How's that happen? It's the Spirit of God, right? So that's going on. And if it's going on in the body, he's saying, then complete my joy, do you see what I'm saying? Finally, 
One writer says, the existence of tenderness and compassion among them would make the unity that was being called for the normal and expected thing. I mean, if this is true of you, what's going on? So clearly you are rejecting that work or you are sinning or you're ignoring that very work that the Spirit of God does to glue you together, to cause you to care for one another in such a way that you will more and more and better and better advance the name of Him. You see? You see what I'm... And then I'll leave you with this because it's done. We're done. He then says, he then says, right after that, after laying out those things, that's when he brings that imperative, complete my joy. I just want you to think about this and come back, when we come back to the text next time, I want you to think about this. Is, he, is that a self-serving request? I'll leave you with that thought. Is that self-serving of Paul? What do you mean? You know, because normally we say to our kids and stuff like that, well, I don't. But you might, I've heard people say it, you know what matters to me, Billy, what matters to me most is your happiness. <laughs> Let's try this out for size. Billy, you know what matters to me most? My happiness. And I want you to complete it. Now, that, doesn't that sound weird? But in this case, it's not weird. It's not weird. It's not sinful. It's fantastic. This imperative, this command is right and good. His joy is the joy of God. That's why he can make a command with every bit of his energy. He can make that command to that church. Complete my joy. It's good and a righteous request. And how does the church do that? We'll pick that up next time. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your church, Father. A gift, a gift, a gift. Your doing, not ours. And Father, help us to know it and understand it rightly, biblically, that we might walk in a way that truly honors and glorifies you. And Father, work among us in our midst that we might have better gospel unity, that, that, that all the things we'll look at in, in the near future here, that they might be even more true of us, that anything that would, would be active or present or, or come into play that might, that might hurt or harm this gospel unity that you have called us to, commanded us to, empowered us for, might we be quick, might we be diligent, might we be preserving that unity and, and doing everything we can to make sure we root those things out, push them out, and lean in to what you've asked us, commanded us to lean into. Why? Because we love you. And yet, we love ourselves. And so we battle with this. Help us, God. Help us. Help us to glorify you more and more here in this little local fellowship here in North Montana. In Christ's name, amen.